If you are not watching The Chosen, if you haven't heard about The Chosen, uh, I would like to recommend it to you. So The Chosen is a production about Jesus' life. So you have to get an app. You can go on, um, you know, whatever that thing is where you get your apps, and you can, you can download The Chosen app. Don't do it right now. Do it after church. Um, and then, you know, through the, like, magic of, you know, cell phones and TVs, you're able to throw that up onto a television screen in some way that I don't understand. Um, but it is, it is phenomenal. Uh, we have enjoyed it as a family. They're in season two right now. I think episode three is out. I don't think there's been an episode that, like, I didn't have a little something in my eye at some point. Uh, but it is the story of Jesus uh, with his disciples, and they're just sort of moving... <laughs> The timeline's a little, little weird. Don't pay attention to the timeline, but I, I do think that some of the, the characterizations are just phenomenal, and uh, especially the characters uh, of the disciples. And to see the different disciples, uh, we, we have really enjoyed it. We, we look forward to every episode. Uh, in the, 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 the first episode of the first season, you have kind of a flashback. I don't mean to give anything away. Jesus raises at the end. We know that. Um, but at, at the, uh, they're having a flashback, and it's John as an older person writing. He's actually like interviewing, you know, Peter and Mary and uh, other people. He's kind of writing down things, and he's, oh, that's good, that's good, you know, little, little bits. Um, but it just sort of pictures John as an older man uh, considering what he's going to write down. And, and I, it's so helpful to think, because I, I think that we can sometimes think of these men as, you know, oh, I'm going to write a gospel, and they just go grab, you know, grab a, a piece of paper and slide it into the typewriter and go, you know, page one, you know, and they just start writing it out. And, and that, that, that's just in no way what it looked like. I mean, first of all, you know, uh, parchment, papyrus, papyrus, whatever, you know, that was very, very expensive. It was uncommon, you know, so they had to really, really think through what they were going to write, and then to get a scroll. And, you know, I mean, praise God for, for this, and now we have phones. I mean, this, you know, for some people, carrying their Bible church is, so, is too much. But can you imagine, you know, carrying like a, a scroll, you know, with you to be able to, to reference? And so, you know, a scroll to be able to be manageable, it, it, it could only be a certain length. I mean, when you, it's, it's interesting because when you look at Matthew and Mark, and John, in particular, they're kind of the same length, like they would have fit on one scroll. I say all that to say, John understood that he had, he had, you know, you roll the whole scroll out, he had this much space to write his gospel. You know, and he's, the last verse of the gospel of John says, now there are also many things that Jesus did, uh, many other things uh, were every one of them written, I suppose the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. So he's got all of these things that he can write down about Jesus, and he's got this, this much space, and, he, and he's got a point that he's trying to make. He's, he's not just listing events. He's not just writing a biography, especially if you've, if you've noticed as we've been through, he, he records an event, and then he records what Jesus said about it, and then he records the reaction. So Matt and I have been talking, because we've, we've kind of come, uh, chapters 5 through 10, might, maybe you've come over these last few months and you've been, that's, it's a, it's a little repetitive. It, it kind of feels like the same thing, you know, Jesus does a miracle, 
he explains it, or there's some kind of controversy, and at the end there is this rejection. And you might say, John, why, why six chapters of this? You know, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a scroll, and you've got so much space. Why did you choose to be so repetitive about the unbelief? And I, I think what we can say on the other side of those six chapters is that John is making the case. He is showing us the difference between darkness and light, between sight and blindness, between belief and unbelief. Because truly, and I, I see this more and more as we continue to go through the Gospel of John, the Gospel of John is as much about the disaster that is unbelief as it is about the blessing of belief. So, to this point, we have seen six signs. John, John has these, these specific signs, the water into wine, the healing of the nobleman's son, the healing of the lame man in chapter 5, the feeding of the 5,000 in chapter 6, walking on water also in chapter 6, and the healing of the man born blind in chapter 9. And in John 11 today, we come to the seventh and last of John's signs. All right, so, so what else can Jesus do? What's, what's more impressive than taking a little boy's lunch and feeding thousands of people? What's more impressive than taking a man born blind that everybody knows is blind and healing him so that he can see? Well, how about raising somebody from the dead? So this is probably the passage that I have preached the most in my 20 years of ministry because this is the passage that I preach at funerals. So I, I preach this passage uh, fairly often. Also, when I teach the life of Christ, this passage is an important passage because this passage is very much a transition towards what will become the last week of Jesus' life. If, if there was no raising of Lazarus, and we'll talk about this more next week, but if there was no raising of Lazarus, there would be no triumphal entry. There would be no Palm Sunday. So this is a transition passage. It's a great passage. It's an amazing passage. John has made his case. The Jewish nation have made their choice. And so from this point in the Gospel of John, Jesus is very much headed towards the cross. And in a few weeks, he will have completed the work that God the Father has given him to do. At the beginning of John, we read, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And I, I would propose to you this morning, and I want you to look at this, you know, read this next week, that in John chapter 11, we see Jesus in his deity, because he raises somebody from the dead, but we also see Jesus the Word made flesh in his humanity because we see the great sadness that he mourns with those who mourns, that he had friends that he loved so dearly that even though he knew he was going to come and, 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 and raise their brother from the dead, he still weeps loudly at the prospect of death. John 11 also deals with very real human uh, things, sorrow, fear, sickness, death. These are all things we know about. Are they all things we will know about? We will all be sick 
We will all know somebody who is sick. We will all be sorrowful. We will all be afraid because we are frail human creatures. And I would suggest to you as we go along here that John 11 is a down payment that Jesus Christ really did come to redeem human weakness for his glory and our good. And John 11, I think, also shows us such a beautiful picture of that, that real humanity. We have a high priest who is not unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. All right, so in chapters 5 through 10, we have been seeing a lot about Jesus as God, both the things he is doing and the things he is saying. Hopefully, if you are a believer in this room, you are convinced that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, the Son of God. I would say that John 11 then shows us some really glorious things about his humanity. What kind of person is Jesus? The person who's living right now, seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven. What kind of person is he? What drives him? What was it like to be around him? And it turns out he was a good friend. He loved people. He responded to their needs. He mourned with them. He was heartbroken for them. And he really, really did live the life that you and I live. All right? Y'all, I promise you, I'm not overselling this. This is a truly glorious passage. And we're going to spend a little time in this chapter. You know how the story ends. I'm not giving anything away. So we're just going to start working through the chapter. We'll stop where we stop, and then we'll pick up next week. All right, let me just bring you in a little bit on the context. From uh, chapter 10 last week with Matt... This is a very familiar story, but the context is very important. At the end of chapter 10, there's some very dangerous things going on with the Jews in Jerusalem. So in verse 31, they picked up stones to throw at Jesus. They want to kill him. And then in verse 39, it says that they want to arrest him, but he eludes them altogether because his time had not yet come. So at the end of chapter 10, where we finished last week, Jesus leaves town. Verse 40 through 42, he went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. And many came to him, and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true, and many believed in him there. So he's, he's gone across the Jordan, he's doing ministry, he is uh, safe. He's in a different jurisdiction. Uh, the, the Jews can't get to him there where he is. He's about a, a day's journey from Jerusalem. So that's where he is at the beginning of John chapter 11. Now, verses 1 through 5 in chapter 11 really tell us everything we need to know about what's about to happen. So we're going we're gonna to look very carefully at verses 1 through 5. Pay, pay close attention, because there's some, some really great things here that John tells us. Let me read 1 through 5 for you, and then we'll, we'll talk it through. Now, a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord... He whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness 
does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now, Jesus loved Mary and her sister, I'm sorry, Martha and her sister and Lazarus. All right, so let's just, let's just look at the setup here. Everything we need to know. First of all, Lazarus of Bethany is sick. So Lazarus is most likely a well-to-do man who lives in a village in Bethany, which is two miles outside of Jerusalem. So when you leave Jerusalem to the east, you come immediately to the Mount of Olives, and if you go right around the Mount of Olives, you come to the village of Bethany. So it's a suburb, a close suburb of Jerusalem. There's reason to believe that this is the place where Jesus stayed when he was visiting Jerusalem. So he would come, and he would stay in Bethany, and he would go into town each day about a two-mile walk, and then he would come back, and he would stay with Lazarus and Mary and Martha. Which leads us to the second thing here. Lazarus lives with Mary and her sister Martha. It's interesting. This is a, you know, picture. Again, John's writing. Picture him sitting there with the scroll. You know, there's no eraser. He tells the story about uh, Mary anointing Jesus' feet with oil in chapter 12. But he references it here in chapter 11. So he hasn't actually written that down yet. But he says, this is the Mary who anointed the Lord's... This is the, this is the greatest thing I can say about her. And you're going to find out about this in a chapter afterwards. But this is the greatest thing I can say about her. She is the one who anointed Jesus' feet with oil. And then let me read to you guys. This is a familiar passage. This is from uh, Luke 10. This is, this is Luke's little description at the end of Luke 10 of Martha and Mary. Now, as they went out on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion which will not be taken away from her. So that's, that's Martha and Mary. You've got Martha who's sort of out there. And, and already, even in Luke 10, which is an earlier time, you've got Martha saying, Lord, I need you to do this for me. Lord, come on, let's get on with it. And you've got Mary, she's hanging back and she's just sitting at the feet of the Lord. And we're going to see those, those characteristics play out here in just a few moments as this, uh, this story goes along. Third thing we see here is that the sisters send a simple message to Jesus. Now, one of the things I think is very interesting about this is I don't know how you've pictured Jesus in the past, but again, we're just we're trying to understand the person of Jesus. Who was he? And, and maybe you've thought of Jesus as just sort of he does what he wants to do. He goes where he wants to do, go. Nobody knows where he is. But clearly, Lazarus and Mary and Martha, being friends of Jesus, they knew where he was. You know, so perhaps they were sort of part of his support structure in Judea. And, you know, so on the way out of town, as he had gone, he had stopped by Bethany and said, I'm going out by the Jordan. If anybody needs me, that's where I'll be. And so they know where he is. He's not a lone ranger. And they send this little short message. At least that's what we have. The one whom you love is sick. Now, 
I've forgotten more Greek than I know, and I try not to bore you guys with a lot of Greek, but there's a little bit of Greek here that's helpful. The word that he uses for love, the one who you love, is a different word than John uses for love down in verse 5. Mary, Jesus loved Mary and Martha and Lazarus. The word that he uses for love in this verse is simply phileo, brotherly love, friendly love, the love that you would have for a brother or a friend. The word he uses in verse 5 is agape love. That's the kind of love that God has for everyone. Jesus had brotherly affection for Lazarus. He was his friend. He was somebody that he enjoyed. And it was so much so that they could send a message like this and say, hey, Jesus, the one you love with brotherly affection is sick. And then down in in verse 5, we read, uh, he loved, agape loved, loved like God, Mary and Martha and Lazarus. When Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Back in chapter 9, in verse 3, Jesus says about the blind man, it was not this man or his parents, but the works, but that the works of God might be displayed. It was not this man that sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Listen to this. Think about this. Jesus says, this sickness will not end in death. Some sickness leads to death. Lazarus may have endured another sickness that leads to death. But this sickness does not lead to death. This sickness is going to lead to the glory of God. That is the key to everything else that happens in this chapter. This sickness is going to end in God being glorified. All right, so here's what we know from verses 1 through 5. And I'm, I, 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 I just I want to belabor the point here because it's so important because it, it helps us understand everything else that, that we see in chapter 11. Jesus loves Mary and Martha and Lazarus. And Jesus is committed to the glory of God. Jesus loves God, and Jesus loves his neighbor. For Jesus, the greatest good in the universe is that God be glorified. If you don't understand that, if you don't, all right, so all of us can say, I, I believe that, you, that, that, that God's glory is the greatest good, but, but, but we don't always live it out. But if, if your heart reacts against that thought, if you're like, I don't, have, I don't see any way that God's glory could be the greatest good in the universe, then, then you're going to have a hard time with what happens in the rest of this passage, all right? This is all centered on our commitment to understanding that the glory of God is the greatest thing in the universe. All right, Jesus' response. Let's read again at verse 5. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, so when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. That's so, it is an important word. It means, therefore, 
Jesus loved Mary and Martha and Lazarus. Therefore, he stayed where he was two more days. What? Why? If you don't understand verses 1 through 5, you have no way to understand why Jesus lingers. First of all, Jesus has healed many people at this point. In fact, we already know from John chapter 2, 4, John chapter 4, that Jesus was able to heal the nobleman's son with a word. My son is sick. You go home. Your son is well. So, so Jesus could have healed Lazarus from down by the Jordan. He could have said to the messenger, go back, Lazarus is healed. Okay, where was I? He didn't do that. He could have said, come on, guys. I need to be in Bethany to heal Lazarus. This time, let's go and heal Lazarus. But he doesn't do that either. He waits two days. So we are looking at something very profound here. We are getting to the big questions of life. All the people through all the generations who have cried out, how long, O oh Lord, why do you wait? Do you hear my prayers? Why are my prayers unanswered? Mary and Martha sent word to Jesus who loved them, but he waits. They ask for something, and he decides to stay where he is. Brother and sister, have you sent word to Jesus about a need? And as far as you can tell, he is waiting to respond. The heavens feel like brass. Can you imagine Martha and Mary waiting for Jesus? Certainly he's going to come. Perhaps like the, the father in the, in the prodigal son story, you know, Martha, who's the more aggressive one, is outside waiting to see Jesus coming up the road towards Bethany. Surely he's just going to speak. The messenger must be there by now. Is, 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 is anybody in there with Lazarus? Has anything changed yet? Have you, have you heard? Has he, has he been healed yet? Do, do they start to say, I, I, thought, I thought he loved us. I thought he loved us. Here's what we know. He loves us, and he is doing something glorious. Therefore, he waits. I wish that I were privy to why Jesus is waiting. When you come and you talk to me and you say, I have prayed and I have cried and I don't understand, I wish I could sit with that broken-hearted mother and say, let me tell you all of glorious, God's glorious purposes that are going to come from this delay. But I can't. We don't know why that Jesus has chosen to wait. But we know that he loves us. And we know that he is doing something glorious. Let me say this too, because I think this is so important today. These times are not the time to question your faith. These are not the times to start taking apart everything that you believe. This is not the time to depart from Jesus and seek other methods of help. So Jesus waits two days. Verse 7. Then after this, he said to his disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews are just now seeking to stone you, 
and are you going there again? And Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in a day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble, because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles, because the light is not in him. All right, so Bethany is two miles away from Jerusalem. And Jesus says, okay, guys, and, and it's interesting. He doesn't say why at this point. He just says, we're going back to Judea. And they say, are you crazy? They want to stone you there. So the disciples then are scared. So we've got, we've got Mary and Martha up in Bethany, and they're grieving. And we've got the disciples who are scared. Large stones cause death in most cases. The, the science is clear. Don't go where people are going to throw large stones at you. Ministry's good out by the Jordan. The Dead Sea is beautiful in the early spring. We have safety. We have comfort. We have success. Why don't we just stay where we are? And Jesus, he speaks in a parable. He says, are there not 12 hours in a day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. So this is a parable. Jesus tells a little parable, and it's very simple. Time is fixed. So there are 12 hours in a, of daylight. There's, that, that, that's not going to change. It's not going to be less. It's not going to be more. Your life is not going to change. God has determined how long you're going to live. There is nothing that anyone can do to shorten your life. There's nothing that anyone can do to lengthen your time. Those cryogenic chambers are a waste of money. And then I always wonder, what happens when the company goes out of business and you're stuck in a cryogenic chamber and there's nobody to keep you going? I guess, you know, that's it. It's over. Nobody can lengthen your life. Your days are in God's hands. Jesus says, if you use your days to walk in the light, you have no reason to fear. Guys, yes, we are going back to the stone throwers. But if you walk in the light, you have no reason to fear. If you walk in the light, we can go right back to Jerusalem with no fear. If you walk in the light, you can go to the far ends of the earth with the gospel with no fear. If you walk in the light, you can live in a world filled with disease and wicked people with no fear. On the other hand, if you insist on walking in the darkness, then you should be afraid. You can build yourself a sterile fortress on an island incapable of being in, uh, penetrated by man or disease, but if you walk in darkness, you should be afraid. Think of it like this. Sin is more dangerous than going back to the place where you might be stoned. This is Jesus speaking. I always think back to those first days of COVID. So I got on an airplane and went to Israel, and I remember just kind of Googling, should I bring a mask? <laughs> and it said, no, masks will not help you. And there were people like walking around in the, in the airport at the time, and they had on these like, you know, gas masks. Like a few of them, and it was like, weirdos, <laughs> what are you doing, you know? So we, we go over to Jerusalem. Well, when I got to Jerusalem, the COVID was in Italy. It had come to Italy. And there were people on our trip who had flown in through Rome. You don't know anything. I didn't know anything, you know? And then, y'all, we got to the Sea of Galilee, and we were staying at a little hotel there, and we found out 
that a group of Korean tourists had been at that site just a few days before, and they had tested positive for COVID. And at this point, I remember walking into my hotel room. I had just found out about that, and I walked into my hotel room, and I picked up the, uh, the remote control for the TV, and I, and I went, ugh, like, what am I doing? Like, what if there's COVID on that, you know? And, I, and I'm, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I've, got, I've got wipes, and I'm wiping everything down, you know? And, and so as we're going through this trip, it's like, you know, the world is, is just, the, 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 the COVID world is just, is just encroaching slowly upon us. And I remember I was walking one night. We were in Jerusalem. It was a couple of days before I came home. I was with Lee Edwards, pastor over there at Beulah. And I remember we were walking through the streets talking. And we were saying, what, and, and, what if we were this conscious of sin? Like, we're really aware of this virus, you know? I mean, I had like, you know, essential oils, you know, oozing. I had people walking up to me going like, what essential oil is that? It's all over you. You know, because I'm putting it, I'm putting it everywhere as I'm going along. What if I was that careful about sin? Christian, how does your fear of a virus compare to your fear of sin? How extreme are you willing to be to guard yourself from the things Jesus said we should be afraid of? And I'm not just talking about the things that we look at on TV or the internet, although you should be afraid of those things too. I'm talking about like greed, the insatiable desire for money that just dominates hearts these days. Discontent. Everybody's unhappy. Everybody's unhappy with what they have. Everybody's dominated with concern about what they don't have. Pride, selfishness, the great American idol is the selfie that we all sort of bow down in front of idolatry, worshiping anything else other than the true and living God, are we as careful as we are with the virus about sin? Because Jesus says sin is really dangerous. If you're walking in the light, you can walk through the stones. If you're walking in darkness, you're in, you're in grave danger. Christians, we're afraid of the wrong things. And brothers and sisters, I exhort you this morning, walk in the light and don't be afraid. I've actually thought a lot about this this week. Um, so, you know, in a world dominated by fear, I think there's a few things we can learn from Jesus in this passage because he is deliberately walking into danger. He is taking his disciples into the place where there is danger. So what can we learn from his words and actions? Well, first of all, I don't think Jesus is condoning recklessness. As a matter of fact, in chapter 10, he left danger, okay? So in that instance, he said, this is getting hot. I'm getting out of here. At the end of chapter 11, he will leave danger again and go back to Ephraim, a city in Samaria. Also, it's interesting because this, this is something that takes place in other places in the scripture. There are plenty of times in Acts when things are getting hot for Paul, and he leaves town. He doesn't stay. Christians, we are never told to deliberately put our lives in danger. And so most of the time, we are free to avoid peril, persecution. That's what Jesus does. When there's nothing at stake, Jesus goes for safety. But in chapter 11, there is something at stake. Love for people 
and the glory of God. So Jesus is driven to leave the safety of Jordan to go back to Bethany because he loves Lazarus and his family and because he is committed to God's glory. When does a follower of Jesus choose to put himself in harm's way? When do we disregard our own safety for the sake of the glory of God and when we love others? Just like Jesus. Love for God and love for our neighbor casts out fear. And when we have to act in a dangerous way, we walk in the light and we trust God. So Jesus explains, verses 12 through 16, after saying these things, he said to them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. And the disciples said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought he meant taking rest in sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died, but for your sake I am glad that I was not there so that, they may, so that you may believe, but let us go to him. So Thomas, called the twin, said to the fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. It's probably worth stopping at this point. And, and let's just think about what's going on back in Bethany, okay? So Lazarus is dead. We know this. Uh, Lazarus has really died. So it's very easy for us in this story to, to think, well, we know the end of the story. But, but just consider this. L whatever sickness that Lazarus had, that it was so bad that it took his life, he went through all of that. Lazarus endured a sickness that caused him to die. In his final moments of his life, maybe he was like, Jesus didn't come thought he would come. I thought he would, I thought he would help me. Look at the perspective of Mary and Martha. They had to experience the pain of their brother, who they loved, dying. Those first few hours, that first day of knowing that he's gone, when it's just starting to sink in, the finality of death, that deep grieving, grieving, they went through all of that. Even as Jesus is there speaking, so he's there, he's talking to his disciples about going back to Bethany, Mary and Martha are in the deep throes of mourning. We know where the story ends, but don't, don't let that cloud the fact that Lazarus has died and his family and friends are truly heartbroken that he has died. The pain experienced by Lazarus and Mary and Martha and the other people there make verses 14 and 15 all the more shocking. So read verses 14 and 15 with me. While you think about that pain, Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus is dead and I am glad so that you may believe. Lazarus is dead and I'm glad. I could have gone and healed him. And I would have kept you guys and others from seeing God's glory and from believing. Why did Jesus wait? Jesus waited so that Lazarus would die because it was necessary to strengthen the faith of those who would witness his resurrection. Real death, real suffering, real gut-wrenching suffering 
so that they could see the glory of God. Y'all, there's no reason to sugarcoat this. Jesus not only allowed, but prolonged human suffering for his purposes. And the reality is, Jesus may not only be allowing, but he may be prolonging your suffering and my suffering for his purposes as well. So once again, if you're joining in with the host of God's people throughout the ages who have said, how long, O Lord, how long do I have to wait? Why don't you answer? Why do I have this disability? Why am I sick? Why is this person whom I love sick? Why is this person I love wandering? Why is it just so hard right now? Jesus loves you, and he wants to strengthen your faith, and his glory is the greatest good in the universe, I don't know why he's waiting. I don't know how long it'll be, four more days or 40 more years, but he loves you, and he intends to strengthen your faith, and he is working things for his glory and his good, and your good. Verse 17, now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been dead in the tomb for four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Mary and Martha to console them concerning their brother. Lazarus is really dead, okay? Understand this. When Jesus arrives in Bethany, Lazarus has been in the tomb for four days. Most commentators say that there was a rabbinic belief that existed at that time that's recorded that the soul hovered over the dead person for about three days, and then at the end of three days, it departed. So Lazarus is truly dead by all estimations, superstitious and otherwise. And you're probably aware this is not the first time that Jesus has raised somebody from the dead. He raised Jairus' daughter, but he did it immediately, and he raised the son of the widow of Nain. He also did that immediately. Lazarus' body, we'll talk about this more next week, but Lazarus' body has begun the process of decay. He's been laying there for four days. And this is a very public scene. So not only is Lazarus dead, but there's been plenty of time for Jews to gather to participate in mourning. All the Jews who could come from around the Mount of Olives from Jerusalem have come to mourn with Mary and Martha and the family. Now, as you would expect, Jesus' first priority is to attend to grieving sisters, Mary and Martha. Verse 20. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. So Martha behaves very much like she behaved in Luke chapter 10. Mary remains at the house. Martha goes out to meet Jesus, and she says what's on her mind. Jesus, come on. You have healed a lot of people by now. If you had been here, my brother would not have died. Don't read disrespect. I I would say read a kernel of faith here. If you could have been here, you could have saved him. So she believes. She doesn't understand. But she's like, I know you could have done something. 
And she, she says, I know you have this special intimacy with God. I know that you could have asked God and that God would have answered your prayer of all people. So Mary is a, Martha is, is a woman of faith. She is a woman of faith, but she's still, Jesus is using this to press into her faith. She doesn't understand everything that she needs to understand, and neither do we. When we're in these times of suffering, we don't understand. That's part of what Jesus is doing for us and for her. I want you to understand more through this. So Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus makes a simple statement. Your brother's going to rise again. I think he means like he's about to rise again. And Martha takes it sort of you know, down the road. I, you know, again, some belief, but inadequate. I know Jesus. I know. I know he's going to rise again in the resurrection. I know that, Jesus. Martha's a good, faithful Jew. I, I'll see him one day, but he's gone. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And she said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. Jesus is using Martha's suffering to reveal himself to her. And Jesus can use our suffering to reveal himself to us. Jesus does not need to ask God to raise Lazarus. Jesus does not need to wait for the promised final resurrection. Jesus is the resurrection. He is the embodiment of life. He isn't just a good healer. He isn't just particularly intimate with the Father. Jesus is God. Martha had faith, but Jesus is using the suffering in her life deliberately to deepen her faith, which leads her to make this remarkable statement, yes, Lord, I believe you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. That statement is a miracle. That statement is Jesus raising the dead. That statement is the blind receiving eyes. A first century Jewish woman is confessing that the man in front of her is God. That is a miracle. Angels are rejoicing in heaven. You guys, think about this. Martha is in the middle of grieving she knows that Lazarus' cold, dead body is lying in a grave. She is grieving. Her heart is aching, and yet she is learning profound things about who Jesus is. And notice, her faith comes before the miracle. Before the miracle, she confesses who Jesus is, and then she sees his power. Brothers and sisters, are you willing to let Jesus take you there in your suffering? There's a new poll out that everybody's talking about, and it's uh, what we suspected is true. America, church attendance is shrinking. Fewer and fewer Americans claim to believe, they claim to belong in a church. There's a whole industry of what they're calling now ex-evangelicals. So there are people who have 
left the faith of their youth and they've taken to social media, they've pr pronouncing that they have tested the faith and they've found it lacking. It is very in vogue now to say that you have suffered and it has caused you to walk away from your faith. Jesus says this about the rocky soil. And these are the ones sown on rocky ground, the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy, and they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then, when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. This morning, I want to exhort you to consider Martha's example instead. I would like you to highlight this passage. I would like you to mark this passage. When you suffer, or if you are suffering now, I would like for you to return to this passage. Before Lazarus has been raised from the dead, Jesus has taught her much, and she is seeing with new eyes. So we're going to stop here this week, and we'll pick up with Mary next week. We're going to leave Lazarus in the grave just a little bit longer as Jesus continues to do his work in the midst of great suffering. But let me just close with this. If you are troubled by a God who uses tremendous human suffering to accomplish his purposes, then you are going to have a hard time with a crucified Messiah. Because that same Jesus who suffered unimaginably, unimaginably, so that the greatest good might be accomplished in the universe was God himself. Why does God allow bad things to happen to good people? Well, it only happened once, and it was to Jesus, and it was the crucifixion. And that, too, was followed by a resurrection. I hope this morning that you can see that Jesus really, really does do miraculous things through suffering, through the midst of suffering. Y'all, we're all looking forward to a resurrection. We are all looking forward to a resurrection. But we have much to learn about who Jesus is as we await that day. We're going to turn to the supper, the Lord's Supper at this point. We are going to hand out the bread and the juice. Um, I would ask only that if you are a believer in uh, the Lord Jesus Christ, as, as we've seen him here, I would, I would ask that you freely partake. If you're not, I would ask that you just hold off. It's not that we are depriving you of anything. We would, just, we would love to join with you in faith to partake of this, and we would love to, to talk to you about that. So uh, the men are going to come now, and they're going to, the men and the ladies are going to come, and they're going to hand out uh, the bread and the cup. Hang on to that. And I'll come up here and uh, read a passage, and then we'll partake together.